0: Hello, welcome back to my podcast. In the last episode, I talked about how I think and I briefly described some of the shortcomings of my mode of thinking. And in this episode, I'm going to continue down that line about thinking and discuss the topic of why I think. Um, This is going to be a very, very lengthy discussion and um, just as a heads up, some of the arguments and examples that I'm going to give um, can be quite controversial given um, our current social and political climate. And also some of the examples I use um, may not be the most well-supported in terms of by science or by data. So if you happen to know um, any these topics better than I do, or if you find any flaws in my argument, um, feel free to let me know. I'd be more, more than willing to not only correct my mistakes, but also, you know, learn something new along the way, which is what this podcast has always, you know, been about. This is what I designed this podcast to be about. So yeah, I hope that can take place. Anyway, let's get back into the topic. Why I think. So what's the meaning behind thinking to rephrase the question? the meaning behind thinking is to find the meaning for in it's to find meaning in my day-to-day life so the meaning of thinking is actually a meta meaning it's its meaning is to find meaning for something else kind of weird but okay so yeah let's say living a day-to-day life and trying to find meaning but you know um here's this distinction um living life is natural thing it's there we're born and then we go through this process called life, and then we die. That's the oversimplification of the process of life, but that's natural. But the idea of meaning and purpose, to endow something with meaning, that is an inherently artificial idea. So, you know, how does that stack up? And, well, one uh, explanation I can offer is that there, there is actually some scientific and neurological basis in, let's say, the definition of Meaning. So, ideally, meaning is something that you would like to pursue, or you know, let's say purpose, or um, le- let's just stick to meaning. Okay, so meaning, uh, the, re- the meaning behind something, if you're talking about your life, then it's presumably something you want to do. And in neuroscience, there's this term called the um, reward system, um, specifically talking about um, the chemical dopamine. So, what happens is um the neurotransmitters in your brain and I think your nervous system has the ability to learn and remember different stimuli that um that results in an increased amount of dopamine, which in terms translate roughly very roughly to emotions like happiness or at least the urge to want something so once you found a way to establish your certain let's say circuit in your brain about doing a certain thing or working towards a certain goal abstractly then technically um, neurologically you've established meaning because every time you do something you're mentally rewarded for it and you're more motivated to go to that direction And hence, there is a natural way to justify meaning. It may seem to be a stretch, but it's a a cool argument that I thought of to bridge the gap between the artificial notion of meaning and the natural process of life. So, meaning. Where does meaning come from? And what does meaning mean to a person? What does meaning mean? Hmm. Sounds very meta again. But anyway, I think it's to do with this idea of self consciousness. And self consciousness, um, you know, there is a, I think there is a strictly psychological definition for it, but I'm not going to get into it. I'm only going to be arguing it based on a philosophical perspective. So, self consciousness roughly translates to the identity of the self and the knowing of the existence of yourself, self-conscious. So what that means is, first, you as an entity has to observe the the inherent difference between you and, let's say, the group that you're in. So you must, um, throwing back to um, the idea of individualism and collectivism we talked about in the last episode, you have to be able to discern at least a certain level of individual. Characteristic um, in yourself before you can establish self consciousness, or else you're just the same thing as the group, and you're not necessarily a self conscious person, if that makes sense. So, yeah, the first thing is there needs to be some inherent difference between you and the group setting that you're in, and the second thing is. And not only do you need to be different, there also needs to be a difference in perspective. But that seemed to be a logical step from from the first requirement, because if you're different um, dispositionally, mentally, then you're most likely going to view things from a different perspective. Then, so you may get you may ask yourself, okay, so now I have to. Um, let's say you've established the the identity of the self then what about the self what are you going to do about it um what's the meaning for the discovery and the insistence or let's say the pursuit of the self and that is of course you know um other than the satisfaction of some of the most um basic human instincts human desires and, you know, um, in our modern sense, you know, the compliance with external restrictions. So that's a after you've been able to be well fed, you've been able to get sleep, you've been able to get shelter and basically survive, and that you can operate decently well in the society. Mm-hmm. It, by that, I mean you can... Um, interact with other people without um, significant friction or um, significant, um, let's say, disharmony between you and the other members of society or society in general, which I'd say is most of us, most of the people that we know in our social circles, then there is a big chunk of our effort and time that's left. And what do we do with that? So that what else is left portion constitutes to what we um, can dedicate to the finding of meaning for the self and then so then once you've um, satisfied those two basic um, the collective uh, requirement and also let's say the instinctual requirement you're going to ask yourself questions like okay so who am I Why am I here? And most importantly, what do I want? Let's phrase this argument in a different way. What else is left? So when we think of what else is left, then you're going to have a significant amount of effort and time that's left. And how you're going to spend it is... It's bit pretty much up to you. Let's say you're writing on the MRT. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do when you're writing on the MRT? You're just gonna sit there, do nothing, you're gonna listen to music, you're gonna read a book, what are you gonna do? Scroll through social media, what are you gonna do? So, yeah, to fill in these gaps, I'd say, justifies for the search for meaning. And for me personally, other than The fact that there's spare energy and time. There are also um, two reasons, for me personally, of why I'm particularly keen about searching for some sort of meaning. It's not doesn't have to be a grand, you know, ultimate meaning for life, which is which seems to be what the religions are pursuing, but also um, meaning for things that happen in my day-to-day life so when I talked of, uh, about um, my personality in the way I think in my previous episode I talked about I look at things from an analytical perspective and I look try and I try to look beyond the obvious and that's largely driven by curiosity I think personality wise um, there's a side of me that is very curious and that curiosity does drive me to try to explore um, what meaning can potentially be and what it is and what and what sorts of influences it can bring onto my life. So that's the first reason. And the second is a sort of a natural progression um, from my high school experience. So as most of you know, um, in high school I've been involved in multiple extracurricular activities as well as a... Very rigorous academic schedule. So it's a very heavy workload. And not only does it take up a lot of time, um, a lot of physical effort, but also a lot of mental effort as well. So yeah, um, when uh, it gets really hard, I start to question myself, why am I doing this? It's because sometimes it's, I wouldn't say torturous, but it's definitely not difficult. And there are definitely easier pathways for me to go i can simply drop out of honors classes or not attend extracurricular activities those are definitely options but why am i insisting on the path that i'm on so it's essentially the question of why and that question of why leads to the need of further justification than just the fact that, and it's an individual justification, not not just because okay, because you know that's what people expect me to do, that's what parents expect me to do, and that's what let's say my peers expect me to do, and I can gain some sort of, I can elevate my social status, so to speak, if I do that. Yeah. So, just to remind, just as a reminder, the premise of this entire discussion is based on. The self, the individual. So yeah, for yourself, you need some justification. You need some motivation to carry on and to prevail. And that is why the search for meaning becomes particularly important in this case. But later on, you know, after I finished high school, I also found out that one of the problems that I have, which makes work so difficult, is not only the lack of meaning, but also um, the problem with my personality in terms of trade conscientiousness. That I'll talk about in another episode. But anyway, let's continue with this train of thought. So yeah, I'm on a search for meaning. And there are a couple of reasons why I need to go find it. So now like how do I find it? Or how do I identify which meaning to prioritize? That becomes the next question, so to speak. So yeah, um in terms of the human life, if we look at it, there are some basic instincts for example to survive. So that covers you need food, water and some shelter and you know, so like like basic necessities to carry out life. And if you lack um any of those, your the meaning or at least the purpose of your life would be to make sure that you can gather all of these necessities. But if you have that, and if you put yourself in the context of the society, now we're taking ourselves out of the, the individual argument a little bit, which is to fulfill your social and familial rules, Roles. Yeah, roles. Um, because human beings were almost inevitably linked to people around us. This is also why the collective argument um, is quite strong. Or at least, this part of it is very strong because your very existence um, uh, necessarily involves the effort of other people. Let's say we're all born um, by our mothers and with the participation of our fathers and potentially other, with the help of other. Um, family members so in that sense you have an innate connection with these people and not only in terms of the family sense but also if you expand that sort of relationship to things like friendship or let's say in a um, working environment there are um, intricate um, webs of social connections and these connections require some sort of reciprocality and so that sense you have to fulfill your own rules in those social settings so to speak if that makes sense and also another way to look at it which is also a collective perspective so let's say you've satisfied you know those around your immediate social circles then you look at the larger trend which is what is required of the society or you know what are the standards um, that your contemporaries impose on you so let's say let's say you were born 20 years before world war ii started then um, by the age of 20 your role is probably to enroll or at least participate in some form in the war effort. So that is an um, example of societal standards, or at least not standard, but expectations, so to speak. So yeah, these three kinds, um, for the self to survive, for your immediate circle um, to fulfill your reciprocal roles, and the third to, f- to contribute to society, in a sense. So once you've satisfy all, all three it's kind of the similar arguments for previous so once you have you have satisfy your own desires um, comply with the social external restrictions then what else what else is there so in this case the question will be what do I want for myself um, after all the above have been sufficiently fulfilled or consciously tossed out um, due to prioritization What do I want as a person? And that question, um, you you may pick from the three above or you might find some other meaning. But then now the case goes to which one's the most important. It doesn't have to be a direct ranking order. Um, For some people, it may be hard. But if you can clearly lay it out, then, you know, more power to you in terms of efficiency and clarity but at least we need to be able to know which are the most important meaning or some of the most important pillars of meaning in our life and most people they usually have a few that centers around for example their personal career their families their friends and maybe a few hobbies things like that that's in our modern society that's usually how things play out but then here i want to introduce a a philosophical movement that kind of makes makes things not so simple, and that is um, postmodernism. The idea of postmodernism. I think I'll do an in-depth. Um, a, it's not necessarily analysis, but just my personal take and how I think this um, philosophical, political, socioeconomic, artistic movement has affected my personal life. So yeah, um that's another thing that I'll talk about in the future. But so far let's focus on postmodernism's on the influence of let's call it um the prioritization of meaning. Sounds incredibly dull and not very interesting, but the idea of postmodernism should be interesting enough to keep people under or grappling with this idea. So yeah. What well, postmodernism Essentially, say that the exact mechanisms of it, I won't go into too much detail, but what it stipulates, it actually doesn't stipulate because to stipulate something, it's itself against the spirit of postmodernism. That maybe sound a little too vague, but basically, postmodernism is a a tool, a set of tools, a set of devices to inquire, to question to critique and to deconstruct any form of canonical meaning grant narrative or absolute prioritization in the world. So let me give you a few examples. For example, um, let's say the story of the three little pigs. You may say, oh, the cannot, they, um, Ultimate meaning of the story is that, you know, you should put in hard work so when difficult time comes, your house wouldn't be destroyed or, you know, your efforts wouldn't go in vain or you would be able to sufficiently protect yourself against danger and evil, let's say. But then in this case, um, I'd say in English class, what a lot of English teachers have told us is, you know, you can um, have whatever interpretation um that you have in your mind as long as you can justify it then it will be valid so to store up the three little pigs maybe to stay away from the wolves you know if you can hide yourself build an underground bunker and the world can come in then you know more power to you you can build a bunker out of straws or wood or whatever you like you know just stay away from the enemy That can also be an interpretation, but that's not the canonical interpretation. And in the the realm of postmodernists, they think it's absolutely fine. So yeah, that links closely to the idea of intertextuality, which for most of you, those of you who have been to Strong's class or Brown's class would be quite familiar with this idea. And yes, it is a postmodernist idea. From that example, we don't really see how postmodernists can affect the prioritization of value not only individual values, but social values as well. So, here I'm going to give you an, another, let's say, more radical and more controversial example about suicide, committing suicide. So, as we said before, um, survival is one of the basic meanings of the human life. So, why would one, why would one want to commit suicide? And... A philosophical explanation for that would be because postmodernism um, deconstructs our value system in a way that there is no canonical meaning, that there is no absolute meaning, there is no meaning that is necessarily more urgent, more necessary, and um, more valued than another meaning. Then why should we follow any meaning, any meaning at all? Because they're all in a sense sort of equal and they don't really, you know, stack up very well against each other. So postmodernists believe tend, um, for a lot of people, tends to fall into nihilistic belief and not nihilism is the belief that, you know, the world exists for nothing and there's no meaning in the world that your existence is just existence itself, there's nothing to do there. Your existence in the world doesn't necessarily lead you to anywhere, and there isn't any higher motive or being. So yeah, when that turns nihilistic, then the idea will be to live or not to live, and we break down the priority of to live. Then that means okay, so if I live or if I die, then these two things don't really, you know, come uh, stack up well against each other. You know, there is not really a way to say one is better than the other. So. Either I don't choose either of them, or choosing either should be fine because another one's not better. So why not choose this one? You kind of fall into a dilemma there, which um, can be used um, philosophically to justify committing suicide. This is perhaps the most controversial claim um, in this episode. I may have made some logical fallacies in there, or you know, if you um, if this content. Um, you find too sensitive, please let me know, um, I may or may not take it down, but yeah, um, it's one of the most severe examples that I can think of how postmodernism is affecting um, people's lives, or at least influencing how people think, and well, thinking has its consequences or its own influences, and I think the extreme example of suicide um, illustrates that point quite well. And, and the last example i to bring up, it's not a series, but it's more a lean towards the artistic side of things and goes to show, you know, um, what I really mean by the lack of canonical meaning, grand narrative, and absolute prioritization. It is a movie by Quentin Tarantino, one of my favorite directors, um, one of his mo- most famous movies, you can argue, um, Pulp Fiction. If you watch Pulp Fiction, there an a linear story narrative and there doesn't seem to be any ultimate story meaning that you know this film is trying to tell compared to hmm, movies like the schindler's list for example it's a great movie you should go watch it by steven spielberg it's about world war ii it's basically the biopic of a philanthropist called Oskar Schindler, who rescued um, Jewish people from um, concentration or or, um, workers' camps. So yeah, in that story, the the, um, goal and the narrative is quite clear. It's in chronological order. It tells how Oskar Schindler um, went into Germany as a businessman, collected enough money, and somehow found his conscience and um, um, decided to um, rescue the lives of a lot of Jewish people. So yeah, that's the message. That's the story. Very straightforward. But in terms of Pulp, fic- pulp Fiction, for those of you who watch watched it, it kind of jumps around, not only chronologically, but the movie doesn't seem to have any canonical meaning. You can interpret it however you like. and That may be the design of Quentin Tarantino, but that's definitely um, the result of the format of the film. So yeah, for that film, there isn't any narrative there isn't even a chronological narrative and there probably isn't no ultimate meaning you can see it however you like so yeah that hopefully gives you an idea of postmodernism and what that means in terms of when we apply postmodernism to meaning is that no meaning is necessarily better than the other because there's no ultimate meaning and there isn't really a way to differentiate one meaning from the other, as one characteristic of postmodernism, if you've realized, and we rephrase it a little bit, is the destruction of hierarchies, value hierarchies, or any form of hierarchies, really. So yeah, there's no hierarchy of meaning, then how do we know what's important? So then I guess it's for you, yourself, to figure it out, you, um, from a thinking perspective. Some people get stuck at this point about, okay, so if there's no canonical meaning, then how do I find my own meaning? It's kind of like, you know, um, at a certain point in your education, you will be told that, oh, you know, you know, you can choose whatever career you want. You can do whatever you want with your life because, you know, it's your life. Just, just choose it. It's like whatever path, just go do it and give under the presupposition that, you know, all paths are not the ultimate path. Which I think is that makes sense by itself. But there are certain paths that are better than the other path. Either by logical reasoning or by tailoring those paths to your personal need. So I think that's the the latter part. The latter path is the path that he approached it. So then the next question I ask is, how do I orient myself in the world? Which is, um, how am I going to act myself um, or conduct uh, my actions and also, how do I set goals for myself, in a sense. Um, and that's especially relevant in uh, this era of online classes where are basically just stuck at home, staring at a computer screen. And classes don't really take up too much, or at least the bulk of your time. So you have some free time on your hand, at least for me personally. And there isn't a lot that I'm doing physically. So, yeah, goal setting is very important. And that gets to the whole mechanism about goal setting and that's also heavily related to the topic of why I think because you have to think of the goals and the ways to accomplish those goals so yeah um, now we are in um, now we are getting into the mechanism of goal setting and let's say self-discipline I call it self-discipline because for me that's what I'm lacking in so Um, how I would describe it is the analogy of a driver and the engine goal setting is the driver on the steering wheel telling you goal setting is the driver on the steering wheel telling you essentially where to go and self-discipline is like the car to body itself and I use the engine as a what's it called cynic dosh or some sort of literary advice but yeah just like a partial representation of the whole body so yeah the idea of the engine so these two things would sort of um, work in line with each other um, to produce an ultimate meaning or at least to be able to make your life meaningful and compared to things like you know the religious sense of spiritual enlightenment i feel like One premise I have to lay down is that it is okay to pursue materialistic things, not but materialistic things and materialistic goals as well. Through this mechanism, it is justifiable. Um, And why that is justifiable is in sort of in two senses. First of all, um, it's individually satisfying and sustainable if that's the case, and also sometimes it can be collectively beneficial. Let um, me give you an example. Let's say I want to be a, let's say, a, um, okay, let's say I want to be a famous motivational speaker. And for me, speaking to people satisfied my own needs because I like to connect with people that way, and because I can share my ideas with the rest of the world. So that satisfies me, and it's sustainable. You know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a legit career that people do, and it's collectively beneficial because you're spreading ideas around. You're sharing different ideas. You're imparting, let's say, some of your knowledge and wisdom onto other people. So that can there's a strong case to be argued that it's collectively good, and those are the two main reasons, and also. Uh, Another case that I make is that um, if we choose to resort to materialistic goals, um, people in the 21st century, so us, we can actually get a lot done in our lifetime compared to our predecessors. So let's use like authors, for example. Um, For example, it takes a lot of people their whole life to write their masterpieces, But now it's like even a teenager can write an influential article in the New York Times, for example. Um, I personally, uh, okay, this is like a fun story of mine, but like recently I found, it's like on LinkedIn, it's like a professional version of Facebook, found a person, 18, who was writing articles for Forbes. And I was like, whoa, that's actually pretty cool. And yeah, that, that person seems to, getting a lot done and compared to people, let's say, in the 1800s who spent their whole life writing a masterpiece. So yeah, the learning curve and productivity definitely has increased. So based on that, the appeal for materialistic pursuits or at least um, short-term um, instantly gratifying not instantly gratifying but short-term um, things that result in short-term gratification seem to be a, a lot more feasible and has a lot more appeal to people in this day and age and i guess this is where i try to introduce i think i talked about i'm um, trying to incorporate Um, bits of buddhism which i've been trying to look into lately not that i want to practice and be a monk or you know be a member in the buddhist religion but it's just the idea that um, i've been trying to study it it's also for one of my classes and buddha said um, while he was on his way to spiritual enlightenment if there was another desire or passion or distraction that is as strong as the, the desire for sex, he wouldn't have been able to accomplish that journey to be enlightened. And well, it's kind of like, it's kind of quoting it out of context. But yeah, sure, if, if that's the case, then it's seemingly the case for us, you know, people who live in the 21st century with the plethora of informations pouring in from things like social media, you know, TVs, like, all, basically all forms of media, which is the increased engagement with the people around us, it introduces a lot more distractions and you know, um, creates a lot more different desires and passions that people can pursue. So in that sense, um, achieving spiritual enlightenment is, in essence, harder. So yeah, that's just the goal-setting part about... It's kind of like a refutation to the religious dogma that you have to achieve some sort of spiritual enlightenment so that, you know, that would be the canonical meaning of your life, which is not only refuted by postmodernism, but just, you know, in the context of the 21st century, that doesn't seem to be very applicable anymore. And on that, I maybe can go a little bit deeper, but that's as far as my thought process go for now. So then... Let's go back to we're talking about goal setting and self-discipline. Now let's talking about now let's talk about self-discipline itself. So the old idea of self-discipline if you look at it in a religious sense, now we're generalizing major religions in the world and how they try to impose let's say, restrictions or self-constraints on the practitioners of these religions. It's the idea of like the state of control, total control for a lot of religions, like say for Christianity for religions like Hinduism. It's like finding a good balance between um, your mind and your outward conduct or um, the intellectual part of your brain and the instinctual part of your brain. Um it's kind of like they also see it in the sense it is a grant um the path to achieve self-discipline is a gradual progression with a definitive destination it's kind of like running a race and uh, no matter how long the, the journey is once you pass the finish line you're there you've you've achieved that state of um let's say the ability to control yourself or strike the balance between you know the intellectual and the instinctual but for us um, people in the 21st century at least for the people that around me whom i've observed based on empirical observation and inductive reasoning as i've talked about in the last episode that this model doesn't seem to work very well anymore Um, at least its application is very different As I talked about, the influences of social media, the increased um, transfer of information and also transportation. um, It's harder to train for self-discipline because of these increased amount of input and also the, enhanced the increased amount of distractions in a sense. So um, the idea of self-discipline, it sort of becomes a never-ending process because there are always new things coming. Let's say social media, for example. Particularly the older generation, for most of their life, they've, um, it's like up until this point, or up until a certain point, they've found a stable lifestyle and a balance in their life to live by. But then suddenly, with the introduction of Facebook, they can connect with their friends more instantly, more conveniently. It's like they tend to spend a lot more time on Facebook. And before they realized it, you know, that's what they're doing. And they constantly chastise or at least um, scold millennials and gen z people like us for constantly being on the phone when they themselves are also falling into the same trap so yeah like not only goes to show some part of the hypocrisy um, i'm sure some of you will be able to relate to that but then it's also this idea that you know self-discipline has to evolve because our environment around us changes so fast, and you have to be able to ad- to adapt yourself, um, or for at least familiarize yourself with different forms of distraction. So, in a sense, um, it's a never ending process where you train. Your training determines your level. So it's it's not like. Um, It's not like a level that's omnipotent anymore. It's not like, oh, you finish, you cross the finish line, and you're there. It's more like a continual uh, evolution. It's kind of like musicianship in in a sense. I don't know if that's oversimplifying um, the idea of musicianship, but it's kind of like you can never become like like the ultimate musician there isn't really such thing you're always just um being influenced by the world around you being influenced by different let's say artistic movements and you're always exploring new avenues and taking things to the next level the next level the next level but there really isn't an ultimate end goal so to speak so yeah self-discipline is about giving yourself um a set of circumstances and see how well you can stack up against it. That's kind of the main idea of it. So then... So yeah, I guess that goes in the large circle to finally get back to the question of why I think and why I think um, all of those things I think about. So we talked about meaning, why we need meaning in their self-conscious sense, uh, what meaning meant, uh, means to different people um, or a different collective of people. what meaning means for myself and how does that meaning translates into things like goal setting and how do i set those goals and how do i make sure that i can stay on track to follow through on those goals i haven't talked about the in-depth process of how to set a goal at least for myself how to set a goal and how do i discipline myself in a certain area partially because I really haven't found an effective model yet, and I'm still in this process of experimentation. And for some of you listening to this podcast, um, if you've made it to this point, congratulations. This episode is incredibly dull and probably the least well-structured of them all, so thank you for bearing um, with me up until this point. But yeah, um, most of you I've talked to about this problem that i have with struggling to come up with an effective model on how to do that maybe it's because this is not the way that it's it's intended to be done but there's also a big possibility that i just haven't reached it yet so yeah i'm not going to be making that episode anytime soon at least until i've figured it out yet so yeah this is the let's say the more extended version of why i think and now you have a good understanding of how i think and why i think i think um, this will provide you with the most comprehensive um, outlook possible into the future discussions that i will have on this podcast and any future content so yeah Um, thank you for listening have a wonderful day